Uh, I'm going to start out tell, tell you a little story I, I found, I'll admit I found it online, of a guy named Tamar Biggins. Uh, this is a guy, um, single dad of two kids, was in Chicago at a barber shop getting his hair cut. And a dispute arose between him and another customer over a missing cell phone. Now, I suspect the dispute involved him, involved him accusing the other person of making said cell phone go missing. Although it didn't get into the, the, the real nitty gritty of the, actually what happened with their argument. Other than that, it was a loud argument. No fists were thrown, it didn't get violent, but it was loud enough that people outside could hear the argument going on and they could see it and someone got uh, nervous and went and called Chicago police. And Chicago police came, and by the time Chicago police pulled up towards the barber shop, Tamar had decided he'd had enough of the argument and stormed out of the barber shop and cut straight across the street through traffic instead of walking down to the corner, pressing the button, which always turns right away, you know, and then walking calmly. He jutted into traffic. He jaywalked. And it was busy enough traffic that apparently cars had to stop, and there's honking, there's chaos, and He's mad and he's storming across traffic. And that's when the cops arrived and they told him mid-traffic to stop and he kept walking across the road. So they jumped out of their cars with tasers, slammed him down, tasered him, cuffed him, dragged him in for essentially jaywalking, right? They're high-grade jaywalking. Um, so he gets dragged in, goes into court, and uh, the judge looks at his case for about, they said about 30 seconds, and the judge posted bail at $100,000. $100,000. Working class guy, community volunteer, dad of two, better make sure he doesn't miss his court uh, you know, appointment. $100,000 bail. Well, he didn't have $100,000 sitting around. So guess what? He has to sit in jail. Normally, they said, Chicago court tries to get these things done in 72 hours. For some mysterious reason, nobody knows. 72 hours came, and then more and more. 39 days, Tamar Biggins sat in the jail waiting for his court case on jaywalking. And uh, finally, the people in the community, because he's a community volunteer, they were writing notes to the judge and emailing him and calling him and and basically saying, you know, can you lower this bail? This is ridiculous. And finally, the judge did. He cut it back down to 5,000. And the community chipped in, and they got him out. And, uh, you know, and of course, you think about a scenario like this. You know, in our system, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, right? You're not supposed to be punished until after they've determined that you did, in fact, commit the crime. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to have a trial that determines how long you go to jail or if you go to jail. But you think about this, if you don't have the money to post those big bails, essentially you go to jail right away. And that's what happened to this guy. Now, you, then you got to think about what happens if suddenly you are ripped away from your life for 39 days, for a month and a week. I mean, what would you do? If you're hourly, you're not drawing any income. And if you don't have income, what are you going to not pay? Your rent, your electric, you know? So people will get, they won't get the bail, so then they'll sit there, they'll lose their job, 
they'll lose their apartment. Well, what happens to your kids? If they can't find family, the, the CPS has to come in, and then they got to put them in the foster care system. So now your kids are in foster care, you're, you have no apartment, you have no job, and you still have not been convicted of anything. You're still technically innocent, right? Now, suppose on the other hand, Jeff Bezos was in the barber shop. That takes a little bit of thinking because I think that'd be a really quick appointment, but run with me here, right? Jeff Bezos is in a barber shop, gets mad, storms off, marches across traffic, and gets a $100,000 bail. Do you think he's going to spend 39 days in jail? No, he'll like Apple pay it. Although if I was the prosecutor, I would totally want remand. I'd be up there like, Your Honor, Your Honor, the defendant has means of, inter he has means of intercoastal travel and interstellar travel. In fact, he even is now uh, enlisted Captain Kirk to boldly go where no man has gone before. I, I expect bail set at 80 billion. Because that proportionally, that's what it would have to be for him to not be able to make bail, for him to have to take a loan, bail would have to be about 80 billion. Of course, they're not gonna do that. So you think about this, you know, what it points out is that it does sometimes matter how much money you have, well, how much justice you get, right? That, that, that the law that's supposed to be impartial can sometimes benefit those who have means and punish those who are poor just for being poor. Now, now nobody claims Tamar's innocent, and he ended up pleading to some sort of a traffic violation, a misdemeanor. So he wasn't totally innocent, but 39 days in jail is not the punishment for a traffic violation, right? But what it says is that those who have the money always get out, those who don't end up sitting there. And why? Why should somebody have a greater punishment because of how much money they have? Shouldn't justice just be justice? Shouldn't, isn't that the whole idea that everyone gets the same, that is supposed to, in theory, get the same trial, the same uh, the, sa the same consideration, you know? In the Bible, there's a phrase for this. They call it justice in the gate. You could easily read through one of your morning Bible lessons and hear that, uh, being, hear that up there and go, and it would gloss right over you. It glossed over me for years. I never knew justice in the gate. I mean, like, what does that mean? You know, you don't beat people up while standing under the gate? I don't know. It never made sense to me. Justice in the gate is Old Testament code for justice in court. They didn't have formal courts like we did. In general, you went to the gate of the city, and that's where the rich old guys who had money to sit around all day hearing cases would mill around. Why did they do it at the gate? I don't know. Uh, maybe they had steps at the gate so they could sit there like an amphitheater or something. I don't know, but that's what they did. And it, it comes up in the Old Testament over and over and over, this phrase, justice in the gate. And so this would, would be where you would hold court. So the old guys tended to know the law better, and they knew the people. They were kind of the town elders, right? Um, and so people would go there, and if you were, say, Joe Farmer, and you had your little family farm, and you thought that, you know, the landlord next to you had taken some of your land, or, he, you know, swindled you out of some cattle, well, where, where would you go? You would go to the gate, and you would appeal to the, to the, to, to, to the elders at the gate, you know, but who did the elders usually rule on the side of? 
Well, they were all in that same social economic group as the rich farmer who swindled the land. And so it would often, often happen that, you know, cases would be handled, bribes would be made, or they would, you know, they, they would just rule with the people who were like them. And little Joe Farmer would get screwed out of his land and his inheritance and these kind of things. So this is what the gate is. The gate, when you hear the gate, read court. And, uh, so let, and so God has rules for how one is to run justice at the gate. Uh, and the Bible's fairly clear on this issue. Exodus 23, let's go way back, way back. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in their lawsuits. Keep far from false charge. Do not kill the innocent and those in the right, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe binds the officials and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. This is the, this is the Lord God, not just talking about spiritual things in your heart, but how to run courts. Don't take bribes in the courts, right? Don't kill the innocent because God's saying, I know what you did and I'm watching. And I, I won't, you may get away with it in court, you won't get away with it with me, God's saying. There are moments when I kind of like that wrathful, that, that wrathful God. Or go to Proverbs. We'll go forward a little bit in the Bible. Go to Proverbs, full of all those great sayings, right? Do not rob the poor because they are poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord pleads their cause and despoils the life of those who despoil them. The Lord, the champion of the poor, right? Again, you despoil them, I despoil you. You mess with the poor, you mess with God. God is the God of the poor and the oppressed. God is looking out for those who don't have the money or the means in the system. God is looking out for them to give them justice. Straight out of the Bible. I mean, in many ways, it shouldn't really be a controversial partisan thing, you know, I mean, I mean, nobody should be punished just for being poor. You shouldn't be let out. You'd be able to get away with murder because you're rich, you know. But yet, the fact that there are so many passages in the Bible that talk about this over and over makes you think this was a problem that didn't go away. And it seems like somehow, no matter sort of how far we progress as a society, it still seems like the levers of the law seem to tilt in favor of those who've got money and connections. And as Christians, following the law of God, following God's word, this should be something that bothers us because it clearly is something that bothers God, right? And, and the other thing is this is something that we can kind of do something about as people. These are our laws. We can rewrite our laws, right? We can put checks on judges to make sure they're not taking bribes. We can get more public defenders. We can make sure our juries aren't all one demographic of people so that they're just, you know, voting with their biases and these kind of things, which is what happened all the time at the gate. You know, the, a lot can be done. It isn't always easy, but these are things within our power as people. In our Bible reading today, we get some words from the prophet Amos. He talks about this too. And his message is much more direct. The whole country is going to be utterly destroyed if you don't change. He, he's, pre, he's pretty 
you get down to business. And so here we go, Amos 5. For I know how many are your transgressions, how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy at the gate. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So you're all going to burn and die if you don't change. But if you change, God might let you live, right? The people of God have become corrupt. There is no justice at the gate. This isn't just kickbacks. This is affliction, affliction. And what is God's point? Change your ways so that you can live. Change your ways so that you as a people can live, as a country can live. Stand up for the poor and the disenfranchised who don't have the means to defend themselves in the system. And this is what the prophets do. They speak up for those who don't have a voice in the system. And let me tell you, it's a lonely job. It's, the prophets always have a lonely job because, of course, they're speaking truth to power, so those with power hate them. Amos was told flat out on multiple occasions to go away uh, because he was a, a shepherd and a tree trimmer. And so when he would go to the high priests and yell at and, and give them his judgment, you know, the priests would be like, eh, shut up, landscaper, go home. Who are you? And Amos would go, I'm not a prophet. I'm just giving you God's word. And because you said that, there will be more punishment on you. And then it says they dragged him out. The, those with power hate them. Those who were poor had no time to walk away from their fields to go and join him in a protest. They had to keep food at their table. So you stand there all alone with lots of enemies and no friends. And it usually didn't end well for the prophets. Uh, there was a long tradition in, Ju in Judaism of the prophets all getting killed for being prophets. And a lot of it's legend that isn't actually written in the scriptures. Uh, there's like a legend that the prophet Isaiah was like hung upside down and sliced in half. It gets really grisly, right? Um, Jeremiah, we know, went into slavery. Some of these things are legend. But even Jesus at one point would stand in front of Jerusalem and say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. We want to be followers of Jesus, right? Another working class guy from the country who is innocent and gets executed on trumped up charges. And maybe that's not the part of following Jesus we want to follow, you know? When you look at the word gospel, right? We're here to believe, follow the gospel. We're the gospel. What does the gospel mean? Gospel is just a Greek word for good news. That's what it means. It's good news. Good news for the poor and the oppressed, right? Good news for those who are the sinner and those who are hurting. And what makes the news good? What makes it good is that it changes lives and it changes the world. And it, and it does change hearts, but it doesn't just change hearts. And, and it does move us in our souls, but it doesn't just move us in our souls. And, and I'll admit that I don't always want to keep hearing articles about, you know, injustice in the criminal justice system. It gets exhausting. I'll admit when I'm scrolling through my Apple news, it's a lot more fun to go 10, you know, 10 stunning texts that were misdirected. You won't believe what they said. And I'll admit I bite because sometimes they are humorous, even if you can tell they're totally made up and fake. 
I'd much, that's much easier to scroll than yet another person got too much of a sentence and yet another one got off too light. It gets tiring, you know, trying to think of all the broken things in the country to fix. And, you know, I'll admit that when I go to a Christian conference, and I guess nowadays they're online, but, you know, when I go to a conference, it's much more fun to hear the stories of, you know, uh, of, uh, of the movement of the Spirit. And it's much, uh, and, and evangelism and this church growth and, and look at these things that are accomplished and, and to hear those inspiring messages, that's a lot more fun than to go to a conference of this guy got screwed and that woman got screwed and this person got screwed and this is unjust and this is unjust. And you walk away going, oh, it's tiring. But isn't, isn't part of being in love or loving someone, being in solidarity with them, being with them, isn't part of loving someone, being with them, even when it isn't going well? Isn't that part of what we're expected to do, not just be there in the good times, but the bad? And if we love our neighbors and we love the poor in our community, then if we really love them, we don't just sit there and say, all right, I love you, I love you. Shouldn't we be bothered when they get mistreated? I mean, if, if, if I love someone and they're getting locked up for something they didn't do, it makes sense to be angry. That, that, that it's your love that makes you angry. You know, I'm supposed to be with those who are hurting. The Apostle Paul says to weep with those who weep. That's one of his commands to the churches. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do both of those things. Weep with those who weep. Why? Because we love one another and we are supposed to love our another and our neighbor. Love is a powerful thing. And sometimes when you have a heart that is loving, it can bring you down by sucking you into the hard parts of people's lives and the hard parts of our world and those who get the short end of the stick and, and it can make you a lot more uncomfortable and frustrated than being inspired and uplifted all the time. And maybe that's why I always like the inspiring conferences because I, sometimes you just need the inspiration because gosh, the news is just bringing you down, right? As people who love God, and who want to follow God's word, want to be Jesus' disciples, want to care for the people the way that Jesus does for us and for one another, you know, you can't really ignore the voice of all those prophets who are yelling us to pay attention to the justice at the gate. To have a heart filled with the love of God is to have a heart filled with pain for those who are being oppressed. It's why true love of God can be such a beautiful, life-changing thing, but it can, also, it, it can also bring you to a lot of pain. And Jesus tells his disciples that, right? You follow me, you'll get great rewards and rewards with persecutions. Sometimes following God will take you to ecstasies and it will take you to mountaintops and it will take you to visions of things you've never had and it will take you to that dark night when you're sitting there in prayer and you think it's done and you feel a presence that's there and it's powerful and it changes your life and it says, I'm not alone anymore and it can take you to those places and then you feel that and then it turn, you turn around and that same power then takes you out onto the street to pay attention to guys sitting in jail for jaywalking. Sometimes the love of God takes you to the mountain and sometimes it will take you to the prison. But wherever it takes you, it takes you there in love because that's what love does to us and that's what the love of God does to all of us. Amen.